This is episode 239 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, How Exercise Helps Your Brain, with Dr. Christian Ron. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a new guest to this show today. I've got Christiane Ron with me, and she is an associate professor, just promoted, so congratulations for that, in medicine at the Cardiovascular Research Center and the McCants Center for Brain Health at Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, and Harvard Medical School in Boston, where she leads the program in neuroprotection in exercise. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Ron is also an affiliate of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. She studied veterinary medicine at the University of Veterinary Medicine Hanover in Germany, the University of Cambridge in the UK, and Cornell University in the US. She earned her PhD with summa cum laude. She's received many notable awards, most recently the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation Harrington Scholar Award. Her exciting work has been covered by popular news outlets like the New York Times and National Geographic, and today on my podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, and it's a great pleasure to be here today with you. So looking forward to our chat. I was curious, just with a personal question to begin, if there was a reason that attracted you to this issue of brain health and exercise. Yeah, so I think it, it really, this, this connection intrigued me that, you know, with exercise, you have the power to kind of change, you know, something in your brain, um, you know, that you are in control of that. So I found it was a really, um, you know, intriguing topic. And then the other thing was, there was not that much known about how this is actually working on a, on a molecular level and, you know, which scientist doesn't like, like a good mystery. So, <laughs> so many people have understood or gathered or are under the illusion that if you do mental exercise, that that helps your brain, that you might be able to keep your brain from declining by doing things like puzzles or memorizing things, uh, learning a language, playing the piano. But you're actually talking about cardiovascular exercise, right? Can you give us some idea of what type of exercise you were thinking about? Yeah, so that's a really good question about, you know, that's the, going back to the first question, this exercise part, in this case, the, the, um, you know, the, the, the sports exercise that we are talking about. So if you, um, you know, the, the official definition is basically that, um, you know, exercise is like a structured, a planned type of physical activity aiming to maintain or prove your physical fitness. And physical activity, which is kind of a little bit lumped in there, is actually any activity involving movement of the body for which you increase the work of the skeletal muscle system 
Mm. over what you would use at rest. So basically, now we are sitting, you know, we don't do any physical activity, you know, and um, that would be the kind of the first step, you know, doing more physical activity, which could be cleaning, gardening, even walking to work, walking, walking your dog. And then the exercise is this one level above, like this structured and plantain uh, type of PA aiming to maintain or improve physical fitness. And we roughly distinguish between two types of exercise. So the one is the aerobic or endurance exercise. So this is everything that um, improves cardiorespiratory fitness. So that gets your heart rate up, that makes you out of breath. And, you know, typical examples include um, running, my favorite hiking, um, you know, biking, swimming. And then we have the other one, which is called resistance exercise, which is aimed at increasing muscle strength. And, you know, the, the most classic example probably is, is weightlifting. And um, if you think about improving brain health, actually, the evidence is strongest for aerobic exercise. Oh. And there's also good data. I mean, we say brain health, you know, this really is also talking about improving cognitive function in, in, you know, in aging. So there are many studies that shown that if you do an exercise intervention in an aging population, you can actually improve cognitive function. Um, the other data, what is out there that's very strong, that even having more physical activity, um, you know, throughout your life is protecting you from developing dementia, which, you know, includes Alzheimer's disease as one of the prominent examples. It's, you know, there there was just a recent study, which again showed that these roughly 10,000 steps gave you the maximum benefit of cutting the risk in half, but even um, as little as only, uh, you know, 3,800 steps already gave you a 25% reduction in developing dementia. So, yeah, and I think that's the interesting part is like how is exercise doing that? Yeah, so that's interesting. So if 3,000 gives you 25%, it's almost linear, right? Which, which, yeah. is, which is kind of encouraging to people, right? It means, you know, if you can't make your 10,000 steps that day, which is actually kind of a lot, you know, just walk around the block, right? You know, don't yes. don't feel like you shouldn't do anything just because you couldn't make the 10,000 steps. Exactly. I think that's one very, very important point is that for most of the, 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 the parameters we can measure in the lab, cognitive function, brain volume, blood flow, um, certain hormones, there is a, what we call a dose response, meaning if you do more, you get more effect. But it also means that if you do a little, you also already get a little effect. And the effects are, again, the strongest also for people who are completely sedentary. So oh. you can even make the argument is like if you haven't done anything, even if you can do a little bit more, you already will have benefits versus someone who is maybe doing, you know, is already at the very top of the curve. Doing a little bit more is not giving you like that much more effect. And um, yeah. And then the other thing, as I talked about, it's not just you know, exercise. Sometimes people also think, oh my God, if I can't do like a five mile run every day, is it even worth it? But the data on physical activity again suggests that even modifying your daily life to improve more active phases versus non-active phases, you know, um, can already help. Like, as you said, like just do, you know, if, you know, do, do one walk around the block, um, do take the stairs instead of the elevator, maybe park your car a little further away on the parking lot, like the small things that people can incorporate um, into their life already can make a difference. Yeah, I have to uh, tell a personal story here. I was just back at my family farm in Indiana, and my parents always worked really hard on that farm. And my mom mm -hmm. used to say, you know, it's actually quite a lot of exercise to do house cleaning and gardening and, and so forth. I have to tell you, I was astonished at my calorie count from my 
uh, you know, I've got one of those things you wear on your wrist just from, yeah, working on the farm. Because I was a little regretful when I headed out there. I was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to do my hikes or, you know, my normal exercise, but who cares? You know, working on the farm was actually, you know, very productive in terms of raising my calorie usage, which in a way is a little bit of a sobering thought because that means that most of the time when I'm sitting at my desk doing the things that I usually do during the day, I'm actually not burning very many calories. So yeah, it's a sign of our modern life that, you know, when I was growing up and people worked on a farm and did gardening and housework and all those things, they were they were burning a lot of calories. Whereas today in our modern life, we don't burn very many calories unless we make an effort. Yes, so I think that's that's a very good point. And something else you mentioned, which I think is also like a little trick maybe that works for some people not, is the kind of measuring, right? You said you have a little device that counts, you know, most people have a step counter in their in their phone or like, you know, like something like a Fitbit type of device. And, you know, for many, you know, setting goals and say, hey, you know, maybe you can't do 10,000 steps, but, you know, maybe if you're currently at two or 3,000 steps, even to say, hey, let's do four or 5,000 steps and checking yourself that could be a good motivator to get there because you know that's the things like things that we measure we tend to be better about um mm -hmm. you know keeping keeping track of that versus just kind of having this very lofty goal of oh I should be more active I should do more exercise instead of you know breaking it down into like little achievable goals that you then fulfill which will then increase your motivation to stick with it and then why you you thereby you will form a new habit yeah, well, that's the that's the power of quantitative data, right? You know, number, yeah, in a way, numbers don't lie. So, yeah, they tell us what's yeah. happening. Sorry, and of course, as a scientist, I do love uh, you know looking at data and 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 counting numbers. So, right, exactly. Okay, so let's start small. If I start running on a treadmill, uh, what happens in my brain? Yeah. So if you break down, you know, this really big question, like how is exercising improving brain health? You can put it in like two categories. The one thing that's happening is you reduce a lot of the what we call modifiable risk factors. So exercise has shown to decrease um, obesity, to decrease uh, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, which we know are detrimental to brain health. So that's the one you know, lever you're pushing on. And another thing is, and that's the exercise we are doing is like, what are these intrinsic effects on the brain? And so the different things that, that it does is, you know, for example, it increases the blood flow to the brain, mm -hmm. um, which is important because the brain cells need blood to do the activity. So increasing the blood flow to, to good, good things in and bad things out is very important. What we also know is, um, and I combine a little bit data from mouse and humans, some of the work we, we can do in humans, some of the work we can obviously not do in, in, in humans, where it's easier to do this in mouse. Something else that we know is that we can actually make new neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. Actually, in the adult brain, there are two regions where you can, even as an adult, make new neurons. In the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain that's very important in learning and memory, and also an area of the brain that responds very well to exercise, oh. you can make new neurons. Um, another thing what it does is the connections between neurons are called synapses. So the wiring, if you if you want. Mm -hmm. So exercise um, helps the synapses that you already there to strengthen those mm. or even to form new synapses. And if you think about aging, Alzheimer's disease, one of the things what happens is you lose synapses. So that's preventing that. 
Um, so if you then, for example, measure in humans, we can see that actually the hippocampus, this region of the brain, either gets bigger or if you think about aging where we tend to lose hippocampal volume, actually the hippocampal volume stays the same. Um, and that is probably a product out of the blood flow. It also increases new blood vessels that can form. And then on a more molecular level, there are a lot of work, including our own, that shows that there are, you know, growth hormones that are mm. um, activated and uh, transmitters that kind of help uh, help with that. And the, the net outcome is basically that you have an improved cognitive function. Mm-hmm. In many different ways, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that or I guess it sort of struck me when you said that about learning that it's easy, that maybe being physically active helps you learn. I, I mean, I've sometimes thought that physical exercise, you know, it just gives you more energy, right? So you just feel more yeah. up and more optimistic. And so maybe you're open to new things and just feel, you know, energized to do things. But maybe it's actually more than that, right? I would argue for that. And some of the work, including our own, now shows that also other organs, for example, skeletal muscle, which of course, it's responding to exercise, right? Yeah. That that can secrete hormones that have beneficial effects on the brain. Mm. So this kind of makes the loop like also like why is physical activity good for the brain? As you mentioned, it's also good for your mental health. As you say, you know, it can help reducing anxiety, depression. It can help you to improve your attention. But uh, the effects we talk about cognitive function, this is, as I said, like on a cellular level, you know, having new blood vessels, strengthening synaptic connections, having new new neurons, reducing what we call neuroinflammation, you know, kind of the bad processes in the brain. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things happening in the brain when you when you do exercise and not just in the brain, like things that happen in your whole body that have a positive effect on on the brain. <laughs> just it's just occurring to me. So I work as a trainer, coach and, and teacher for my clients. And I often do talk to my executive clients about exercise because I think it has such a beneficial effect on stress, which is yeah. Stress is often one of the reasons that people come to me is they're, you know, they're struggling at mm-hmm. work, they're they're stressed and unhappy. And yeah, just, you know, sometimes mid-career, a lot of things can happen. But it never occurred to me until just now that I shouldn't just talk to them about exercise because that will reduce their stress levels and a able to make them cope with work, but also they'll learn better, right? Yes. (laughs) You should tell them it also increases their attention span. It improves their, you know, Mm. learning and memory. I think maybe for people that don't like the kind of maybe the lofty part around that, maybe that's a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, nuts and and bolts for them. Yeah. And um, another thing which exercise, you know, depending on how you do it also can have, if you talk about the stress reduction, there's more and more work coming out that talks about being out in nature. So a lot of us, you know, mm-hmm. when we do exercise, we do it outside. And, you know, again, which has shown to to reduce stress and and, and anxiety. Yeah, you mentioned hiking, right? And yes. That, yeah, some of it, the environment in which you hike. I mean, we can all do urban hiking, but I live near the beach and I, I'm often struck by how therapeutic being near the ocean seems to be so yeah lots of lots of good stuff out there for sure and again this is the thing like how do you do more exercise find things that you like right you just mentioned you know i love hiking you love hiking you like hiking you know, if you can find exercise that actually you know is is nice maybe it's meeting up with a friend that you don't get to talk to that that much and make it a habit to you know meet them for a walk in a in a local park that you like 
maybe this swimming, you really want to go back to swimming and maybe your local YMCA, they have a pool that is not that expensive. So you could start that. So if you can think about exercise, not just about this one thing that you kind of have to do, but if you can find ways to do it in a way that you enjoy again, you're much more likely to stick with it. I have been using that uh, quote of yours for all kinds of things, actually, (laughs) that uh, stick with things that stick with you. Yeah. And I think that's such a great uh, piece of advice and a good attitude to have toward things that are good for us. Um, Yeah, I, I kind of said like, you know, stick with what you can stick with. So what I mean, what I just kind of tried to explain is do things in a way that they are appealing to you. Like if, you know, I, you know, I like the hiking, I like the walking. I'm not really a big fan of biking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking for an exercise that, uh, you know, appeals to you because you will get more motivation to, 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 to do it. And then you will have your, you know, your, your brain likes to do things that gives you pleasure. Right. And it will then seek out to do that. And if you can, that not just getting from binge watching a very exciting show, but if you can actually get that from, you know, looking forward to the walk with your friend, looking forward to that hike, I think that's a, a way that is really, really good for building that again, to make actually the whole goal is to make it more like make your life better, make it more enjoyable, not putting one more chore on the to do list of people that is already more full than they most of us can handle. But to kind of put things in there that, that make life more, more enjoyable. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. So you mentioned mouse models. So I was curious about that. So tell us how how that works. How do you create mice that have cognitive dysfunction? And then how do you measure the impact of exercise in mice? Yeah, what we study is we we study um, the cognitive decline in aging. And for that, you just take mice and you let them age. So an, an, an oh. old mice that is <laughs> okay. actually very old would be, like, you know, that is someone that's more modeling, like, you know, really um, geriatric age is a mouse that's close to two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the models um, for Alzheimer's disease. Research has found different genes that when mutated cause early onset Alzheimer's disease. So maybe people have heard about mutations in the APP gene or in the presenilin 1 gene. So we can, with through like genetic tricks, we can make what's called transgenic mice. So these mice carry these mutations, these mutated proteins that we know causes them to develop at least certain aspects of Alzheimer's disease and we can use them. And that's why I always try to say, you know, we can't really give the mouse Alzheimer because it's a very complex disease. We don't understand every single aspect of that. So that's why we call it an Alzheimer mouse model. We model a certain mm-hmm. aspect of the disease. For example, what people have maybe heard about these amyloid plaques that that are um, um, coming up in the brain in Alzheimer's or the neuroinflammation that then happens when the brain is trying to get rid of these plaques or their models for like tau. Some people have maybe heard about that tau tangles are also a problem in Alzheimer's disease. So there are also models that have these, um, you know, mutated tau in there. And how do we exercise the mice? So actually, there are two ways to exercise the mice. The one is, as you mentioned, the treadmill, um, which is oh. like a monitored exercise where you have to kind of uh, entice them to run on a treadmill or what we do, which is called freewheel running. So it looks a little bit like an exercise wheel you would use for like a, a hamster. Uh-huh. And um, actually, mice love to run. 
If oh. you believe it or not, they actually run several kilometers a night, um, you know, five to seven kilometers, which is quite astonishing if you look, you know, if you think about how small how they are. They are would, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you then try to calculate how much it means for a human. And that's something, it's a very natural behavior. There's actually somewhere out in the internet, a little video where scientists put a camera and they just um, um, put a running wheel there and a little camera and they just monitor which animals, like I think there was frog, some kind of uh, mm. wild mouse. And they all climbed on the wheel and, and, you know, started running and, you know, enjoyed it apparently greatly that they were doing it voluntarily. So and that's the exercise oh. we are using because you don't have to force the mouse to do that. Um, they, they do it um, out of their own volition. And we have little counters on the wheels. So we actually know how much they do exercise because again, similar to mice and human, there are some mice that, um, you know, really do their exercise to five <laughs> to seven pace. And there's the <laughs> little lazy mouse, which is barely running one kilometer. And then, um, as I said, you know, most of these benefits that we're seeing are uh, dose dependent. So the mouse, you can see that is not even running one kilometer. If you, for example, look at the number of newborn neurons in the hippocampus, they don't really look that much different from the mice that are not exercising. And so that's what we can do. Um, this is kind of the natural exercise models. And then obviously, since we are trying to develop uh, therapies, what we can do is we can also then give these mice drugs or precursors of drugs that you know are connected to exercise, or we can do different genetic manipulations to, you know, remove genes that are important in exercise or overexpress, activate genes that are important in exercise. And then you can look at the, what are the effects on the cells in the brain, what are the effects on the molecules in the brain. Um, you can measure actually cognitive function in mice. That's what I was curious. Yeah. So how do you do that? So different ways. Uh, one, you know, we have talked about the hippocampus is really important. And what the hippocampus is really good at is spatial navigation. So, you know, f finding something in space. So what we do with the mice mm. is... We have them in a in a pool with water, and the water is opaque. You know, you can put some dye in it, so the water is opaque. There's a hidden platform in there. Oh. So the mice, they can swim, but they, you know, they don't enjoy it. We make sure the water is warm, so it's not that we are kind of giving the mice a, you know, a, a cold shock. So this has, like, nice 24-degree water. But they don't want to, you know, they want to, they prefer to get out than swimming. So okay. you put them in the water and they're going to start swimming and they're going to find at some point the platform. And then they're going to remember, they're going to look around the room and be like, oh, okay, this is where the platform is. This is where the door is. And then they are like, okay, I need to swim towards the door. And then we do actually training with them. You know, they get a couple of trials every day and then they learn over time, you know, kind of like, you know, how you learn when you maybe go on vacation and then you have to create a new map in your brain, how to get from your from your vacation home to the supermarket to the beach and that. And the mice learn that. And we can we can basically measure how long it takes them to learn. So this is one of okay. the, you know, it's called the Morris Water Maze. It's one of the, you know, very well established cognitive function tests in, in mice. And with exercise, the mice learn faster. So it takes them less time to to find, you know, to remember the location of the platform. And later on, if you do a, what's called a probe trial, where we actually remove the platform and just let the mice swim for a minute. The mice that learned where the platform is, they're going to be keep circling exactly where the platform is mm -hmm. because they are there. I'm I knew 100 it was here. Sure. I knew it I was knew, here. I knew it was here. I knew it was here. <laughs> and that kind of shows you, yeah, they actually did learn the location. So this is things that improve with exercise. And yeah, and on the, con you know, conversely, spatial navigation is one of the cognitive functions that goes early with Alzheimer's disease. You have maybe heard about these anecdotal reports of people getting lost on the lost. way home from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. It's because your spatial memory is not 
that great anymore. You're standing there and you always knew I have to go, you know, down that street. And when I take a right and suddenly this, this, this navigation is not working anymore. Mm -hmm. So again, the connection of exercise is affecting the brain areas and brain circuits that are also very vulnerable in, in aging and Alzheimer's disease. I think when I was reading about your work, I was also really excited to see that there seems to be some evidence that you can reverse some cognitive decline. So so tell me about slowing, stopping, or even reversing. Can you uh, draw any conclusions about those? Yes. So um, there, there are two things. So the one is there is data that shows that, you know, even if you're aged, and this is like in mouse, there's a nice study that mice that have never done any exercise in their whole life, if you start exercising them, they will perform much better in this cognitive spatial learning task than mice that have never exercised. Um, and it's the same in human. I think I have mentioned there are studies where you do an aerobic exercise intervention. If you do a cognitive task, they're improving. There are also some studies, I mean, in mice, it works very well if you have these Alzheimer mouse models. The ones that we exercise versus the ones that don't exercise, they perform much better in these in these tasks. So you're basically slowing down the cognitive decline. In humans, the data is a little bit more mixed, but that's also because, you know, Alzheimer's disease is much more heterogeneous in humans. It really depends on how early or late in the disease you start the exercise mm -hmm. and what kind of exercise you do. However, studies that had good inclusion criteria, that had a, a, a well-defined exercise protocol that improves what we call cardiorespiratory fitness, kind of the readout, like actually you did challenge your cardiovascular system. There are studies that show that even in people with already, you know, early cognitive decline, you can slow down that process. What I would like to say is people should not have the expectation if someone has already you know, full-blown dementia that if they just start, you know, to, to walk around the block or, 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 you know, like, you know, working on the treadmill at home that you could completely reverse the process. So I don't think that's, that is possible, but definitely, you know, slowing down the process, that's something that, that you can aim for. So one of the things that was also interesting to me in your research was that you were looking at secreted factors and that there might be that that information, that data then might be used to understand better some potential drug targets. So you're not just telling people to exercise, but also, you know, that this kind of research might lead to more pharmaceutical type intervention. So, yeah, tell us about that. What are those possibilities and, and who would take that kind of work forward? So this is kind of the, the idea that we have with our research is, OK, we know that exercise has these benefits. However, not everyone can exercise, especially people, you know, in older age. A lot of them have comorbidities that, you know, prevent them from doing maybe the exercise to an extent that you would challenge your cardiovascular system, your brain to get all these benefits. So the idea would be, can we find the factor or one of those factors, molecular mediators that is encapsulating a lot of these cognitive benefits in exercise and then turn this into a drug that people could take that, you know, either at high risk that can't do the exercise or Maybe you might even need to, as I said, like exercise can prevent some dementia. It can maybe slow down something, but maybe if we boost using, using a drug, the effects of beyond what we could do with exercise, you know, maybe again, this could be used as a treatment. And so our, our own research has identified one of these important mediators 
It's an exercise hormone called irisin. It's named after the Greek goddess Iris, which was the messenger between the the, the gods and the humans. Oh, nice. Yeah. So um, it's, this hormone is made in the skeletal muscle and exercise and also in the hippocampus. Oh. It is 100% conserved in mouse and humans. So that means the identical molecule exists in mice. And in humans, in exercise, it starts circulating in the bloodstream. And we showed that, you know, in others, that if you exercise, you have more of irisin in mice and humans. Um, We also showed if you do a genetic trick to delete irisin from mice, you actually don't have these cognitive benefits that we just talked about that you get with exercise in these mice with better performance in the Morris water maze. If you don't have irisin, you don't have this benefit anymore, suggesting that this is really an important mediator. And if you age mice and they lack irisin, cognitive decline is faster. If you have a mouse um, that is an, an Alzheimer's disease mouse model, and it doesn't have irisin. Again, cognitive decline is faster, mm-hmm. suggesting this is really important. We have looked in um, samples from, you know, some people donate, you know, brain samples to, to science mm-hmm. and their databases. So we looked in those. And also in humans, Alzheimer patients had a 70 reduction percent reduction in the expression of the irisin protein in the hippocampus in this relevant brain region compared to age-matched healthy controls. Mm. So this was kind of the first part that shows us, oh, this is really important in in exercise and in the disease process. And then uh, we kind of showed that, for example, one reason why these mice were not that good in exercise is because this process of making new neurons wasn't working as well. Mm -hmm. So they were making the neurons, but the newborn neurons that they're making are not as functional as in mice that have irisin. Then we took a step back and said, you know, what about, can we treat Alzheimer with that? And of course, you know, you you do that in preclinical mouse models, right? Mm -hmm. So we treated these Alzheimer mouse models. um, We used a a trick of gene therapy. Maybe people have heard that where um, you're not giving the, 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 the protein directly, you're giving them a virus with the gene. So these mice are start making more irisin in this case in their liver. It's not important that it was the liver, but the liver is just very good in doing that. Okay. And then the mice have more irisin floating in their bloodstream. So kind of similar what happens in exercise. Mm-hmm. Actually, we gave them even more than they would make in exercise. Oh. And then what we show is that this, this irisin that is in the blood actually can cross over through the blood-brain barrier into the brain. And these mice that, (laughs) and so these mice treated with irisin, even though they already had symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, we were able to slow down the cognitive decline and we were able to improve what's called this neuroinflammation. So one of some of these bad processes happening in the brain that are destroying uh, synaptic function. So that was really exciting. And Mm -hmm. the the exciting part is we, we, we showed this in different mouse models. It was not just like, oh, this one specific AD mouse model worked. It worked in different mouse models. Mm. Neuroinflammation is a very, uh, like it's a process important in many neurodegenerative diseases. So we also think because it's not, it's, it's working like on that global mechanism, it could be beneficial to other diseases. And there was just recently a paper also on Parkinson's disease in irisin uh-huh. showing beneficial effects there. As I mentioned, it's 100% conserved between mouse and humans. So if we know it's, it's relevant for human biology. What you said, what is so cool that it goes from the blood to the brain. This is really important because we don't have to, if you want to develop it as a drug, we don't have to try out some, you know, pharmacological tricks 
how do we get it into the brain? The molecule already knows how to get into the brain. Right. Which, you know, if you if you think about this, like all good um, uh, uh, properties of, um, you know, a, a drug candidate. We don't know if this is going to work out. There's going to be a lot of work to be done. But at least all these factors make me, you know, cautiously optimistic that it's at least a good candidate to keep working on. Yeah, it seems like identifying that protein is really key. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about irisin, or if this work has been done. So are some people just particularly good at producing irisin, or is it related to your genetics? Or you've mentioned people who exercise throughout their life. Um, so yeah, tell tell me about irisin. Yeah, so that's it, it's a good question. So there are um, some studies that measure, you know, that um, exercise, different types of exercise, can produce more irisin. Mm. Um, there's actually one kind of interesting study where they looked at a uh, it's called a gene modifying effect on at people with exceptional longevity, and they found right. some um, modifying effect of irisin on some of these genes that they know was important in in in, in aging. So oh. maybe there's a connection there. There is some studies where they showed that there's also reduced levels of irisin in Alzheimer patients. And that there might even be a correlation with, you know, severity of disease. But, you know, this is still, still all early work. Um, so, mm-hmm. and I think we need to know more, um, like about, you know, as you were just asking, are there some people that are really bad at making irisin and that's mm-hmm. why it's not working? So that's actually a very interesting experiment to look maybe at people that say, Hey, I do exercise, but I feel like I'm not getting the effects. Maybe that, you know, to, to look into that. Yeah, their production of irisin is is yeah. hindered in in some way or reduced in some way. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And you know, it's big field, so I don't want to say that irisin is the one and only hormone that yeah. is doing anything and everything. But you know, there are other, you know other very good scientists working in the field that have found other factors. But you know, based on all the things I have told you before about irisin, I do think uh, you know irisin is somewhat a special molecule for, you know, developing drugs uh, out of it. So I have to ask this question, although, yeah, this uh, this might be a little far out. So are there things that people can do besides exercise that would boost their irisin or are there foods they can eat or, you know, things like that that would help their irisin levels? Ah, good question again. So I don't think we know, you know, it's really an exercise hormone. So I don't know. I can, you know, recommend like any foods or that. There's actually some colleagues of mine at the McCann Center for Brain Health actually developed what it's called. The Now I just have to um, remember, it's called the Brain Care Score. And there's a little website they can go on to if they Google, you know, McCann's Brain Care Score, where they can type in different lifestyle risk factors. And it actually tells you, you know, how, how, um, you know, how conducive to brain health your lifestyle is. Mm-hmm. And if there are areas where you could, for example, improve to, to get more, you know, more benefits on your on your brain health. And I think that might be an interesting tool for a lot of people also to kind of see, um, you know, how good they are and, and what are also, and it has very practical tips what you can do. It's not just like, oh, this is bad, but to kind of say, oh, these are things you can do to improve on these areas. So, yeah, very interesting. It's interesting to me that liver is a good place to produce irisin, which you know, we always talk a lot about liver health because of alcohol use. Does that mean that alcohol can reduce your production of irisin and does have an effect on your cognitive? It seems like that would be the case, but I don't know if the science is there or not. 
Yeah. So in this case, we kind of used this gene therapy trick. So we, we decided that one organ is going to make more irisin and we just used the liver because the liver is already making a lot of hormones that it secretes into the blood and it likes some of these viral vectors. So that's why liver is good. But it was actually a question that we did get asked like, Oh, why didn't you just put it in the skeletal muscle? Why did you ask the liver to mm. make it? And it's just because it was kind of a tool makes it easier. Yeah, but that's kind of an interesting question. I think one of the surprising things that we found in our research there was that, you know, the effects from irisin also on, on what we call the glial cells on neuroinflammation. So it's not just having an effect on neurons, but it seems that an important effect was actually on these support cells in the brain or the immune cells in the brain. So that was quite uh, an exciting finding and something that we are, you know, following up in, in, in our laboratory. So what would be the implications for that? So as I said, neuroinflammation is a general disease mechanism in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. And there are a lot of developments where people, you know, trying to target neuroinflammation and there are good oh. ideas out there. And it looks like that exercise might be also one of these interventions that is reshaping these immune cells in a way that is beneficial. And immune cells, there's this kind of it's immune cells and astrocytes. We kind of know that, um, you know, I, I did a PhD in immunology, that mm-hmm. uh, it's a balance. So if your immune system is completely not being able to activate, right, then you are at risk for infections, right? You don't want that. However, if it's overactive, then, you know, you can have autoimmune disease mm-hmm. or you can have, you know, sepsis. Like you can have, like when you get a disease, how do you say, an, an overreactive immune response that itself can be detrimental. You know, there's some ideas that maybe that's a reason for long COVID, that, you know, having too much immune response to to the virus. And that's why some people get long COVID and other people are not. So and this oh. is a general principle in, in immunology. So it seems that exercise is good in activating these cells in a way that you want to activate them without getting them, you know, too excited mm-hmm. or, you know, not having enough of a response. And so, again, if you think what I think that's a very interesting, again, line of thinking and what exercise mm-hmm. is telling us, you know, it's basically we already that the body already knows what it needs to do to protect itself against Alzheimer's disease. We just have to understand it better, I think. And given these, you know, there was, was it yesterday, the day before, again, some reports of some Alzheimer's disease drug trials that have failed, which is, of course, heartbreaking for, you know, all the people that have invested a lot of time and money and all the, you know, the patients that were hoping for a cure and their families. But it also underscores that we still need innovative treatments, like strategies that are kind of, the, you know, maybe diverging a little bit from the, the, the things so far tested. And I think exercise is, you know, one of these interesting innovation, innovative ideas, how, um, you know, to treat um, Alzheimer's disease. Well, and it's natural, right? I mean, that that surely is appealing to people too. I mean, as you say, drugs can be very powerful and and I'm, I'm definitely pro-drug, but, uh, but of course, exercise is just lovely because it, it is natural. So you don't risk some of those other problems that come with yeah. drugs. And and what I mean also with exercise is, as I said, like trying to understand what is exercise doing to your brain and then actually do make a drug out of it to model these effects. You know, for example, irisin or some maybe even something else. Maybe there's something else there. And because exercise is pushing all the things we wanted to get pushed mm-hmm. um, and reducing the things, you know, the, you know, the bad things like neuroinflammation. So exercise is good in, in doing these things for your brain. We just have to understand better how is it doing it and are there checkpoints where we can target, where we can intervene 
pharmacologically. And I think that maybe this could be a, a breakthrough for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. You, at least you got to try, right? I mean, that's, I think that's, I've, at least for me, that is an important uh, thing. And that's the one reason why we work on Alzheimer's disease, because I think it's such an important area to make advances. Yeah. I wanted to ask you that. I don't know very much about Alzheimer's. I hear sometimes people talk about environmental factors influencing Alzheimer's. Do you know very much about that? Or is there much evidence of that? Or is that just something we're speculating? Where where are we at with that? Yeah, I think this is still early, early studies also because, you know, our, um, you know, I think when you talk about the environment, you're probably talking about some of these, you know, toxins that we might have introduced into the environment. I mean, this is things that we, we you know, we changed our environment very rapidly mm-hmm. over the last, you know, decades. So I think we need more, more research to understand how this is happening. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's good that some people also look, look into these, uh, into these areas. All right. What are the next steps for your research? So, um, you know, as I said, I, you know, it, it is kind of a dream that maybe Irison could be, you know, a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So to go from this really exciting finding, in a preclinical mouse models all the way to humans, you know, to a clinical trial and eventually maybe, you know, it becoming a drug. It's a, it's a long way. So we are taking the first uh, steps towards that to kind of understand better, you know, iris and protein. How is it working? You know, which cells it is acting on? How do we have to give it to mice to kind of, you know, um, have good um, kinetics in there? So I think this is one important area of the lab is to kind of Getting it into the, towards the pipeline, um, towards drug development, understanding better the basic biology. And that's, um, you know, ADDF that you have mentioned, um, is one of the grants that is going to, um, support that as well. Now, your work is housed in the cardiovascular health section of MGH. It's kind of an interesting place for this work to be done. It seems to me inside a hospital and especially inside cardiovascular health. So I was curious what other research is being done there about the benefits of exercise, not necessarily for brain, but you mentioned longevity, um, but especially obesity, since obesity turned out to be such a key factor for COVID. Yeah, so um, I think what what is for us very special is we have this intersection of the cardiovascular research center and the McKen Center for Brain Health. So this is really good for doing this interdisciplinary work where we have the expertise, mm-hmm. you know, on, 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 on the one hand, as you said, on cardiovascular health and the expertise on brain health. And, um, yeah, we have, I have really good colleagues, you know, trying to understand, for example, how exercise protects the heart in aging. Um, because, you know, also heart health is declining in, in aging. So they are trying to understand that. Um, we have other colleagues that kind of work on the opposite spectrum on trying to understand how, you know, in, in young people, you know, where you might have with exercise, these adverse events, you know, this sudden cardiac mm-hmm. death, you know, so there are programs there where they're trying to find out to do assessments in young uh, athletes to to screen who is at risk or who is not at risk. So that's basically on the other side. There are certain heart diseases that are, you know, um, related with obesity, different subtypes. So there's some interest in understanding um, how, how that is developing and which is the role that exercise is playing. And yeah, so this is also how my lab came to be there because there was a strong interest in like building an exercise program, uh, you know, interdisciplinary to look at the heart looking at metabolism, looking at the brain, because these are all areas of the of the body that are, you know, where exercise has beneficial effects. 
um, sleep. I should also mention sleep. Oh, There's some yeah. um, mm -hmm. colleagues of mine working on sleep, how this is influenced by exercise, because um, you probably also heard the research that shows that sleep and Alzheimer's disease have a connection. Um, on the one hand, that disruption of sleep could be an early symptoms, but also, oh. um, you know, that having bad quality sleep is, um, you know, bad for your cognitive function. Everyone who you know, had a bad night's sleep, yeah. uh, you know, can, can attest to that, at least <laughs> right. short-term effects that, you know, if you didn't have enough sleep or it was interrupted, um, you know, your performance the next day wasn't that you're stellar. Really, but you're also, really dumb the next day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's also seems to be some chronic effects there. So this is another, you know, exciting area of research right now in, in, in brain health to understand, like, how is sleep impacting, mm -hmm. impacting that? Mm -hmm. Well, as I say, it does seem to me that the work that you're doing is really important now, you know, I, just from a public health standpoint, it's not my area of expertise at all. But when I look at the United States, it really worries me that our population seems to be getting older and and fatter and, yeah, just having a, a lot of problems that just seem to keep getting worse and worse. I mean, really dramatically worse just inside my lifetime. So if you allow yourself to dream, what do you think could be the ultimate benefit of your work? If we could develop a drug that is preventing or improving um, patient outcomes in Alzheimer's disease, I mean, it's a pretty big dream, but that would be, you know, if, if that would be the result of our work at the end of my lifetime, I think I would be very satisfied with what we achieved. I think so. Um, and then maybe, you know, on a smaller scale, um, you know, as you know, raising the awareness of, you know, what exercise can do for you and mm -hmm. um, raising awareness of maybe smaller things that people can do to be more more active and 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 enjoy it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that would be something else what we would strive for. Is Alzheimer's getting worse in the United States? Are the rates increasing? I don't really know. Yes, yes, they are. Um, and one reason is just because we have an increasingly aging population and age is the biggest risk factor for um, developing Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Mm -hmm. And however, there is also some concerns now with long COVID you know, or with the notion that COVID is affecting brain health, that maybe this will also trigger, like someone I think called it a tsunami of dementia later on that you know maybe oh. people that um, would develop either that they are at risk that they would develop it earlier or that people that would maybe not necessarily at risk at Alzheimer's disease could develop that or some other dementia it doesn't have to be Alzheimer's disease but that basically their brain um, health is would be um, affected in like in a in a negative way earlier than before. Risk factors. And the other thing, what you also have mentioned, right? A lot of DEVA modifier risk factors, what we talked about high, high blood pressure, one of them, mm. um, you know, diabetes, obesity, these are also risk modifiable risk factors that are increasing in the population, unfortunately. And uh, I don't want to downplay it. I know how difficult it is. I don't want to just, you know, I think sometimes people ask me, oh, you know, why don't you just tell people to exercise and eat healthy? I mean, it, it, if it would be that easy, everybody would be doing it all the time, right? So I think the good the good news is these are modifiable things. These are in a certain extent in your control. But I think you also should be, you know, empathetic towards 
the effort that, um, you know, some people more than others have to make. I mean, there are some people that are very fit and even with minimal effort, you know, they can get up and then run another uh, 5K run. And other people, you know, if they don't do regular exercise, they really, you know, get out of shape and everything. So I think keeping empathy is, is important when you talk about these things. I'm so glad that you said that. I think that's that's really something I would like to emphasize to to my listeners is this idea of empathy for people. And it, you know, the thing that I was kind of struck by when I went back to Indiana and was a lot more active just in my natural day-to-day is it's almost a systemic problem. So many of our activities today really do lend themselves to being sedentary. Yep. And, you know, sometimes it's our busiest and hardest working people who who don't get much exercise. And so it's really, it's not a moral failing, right? It's It's a problem with modern life. And as I say, sometimes, you know, people who are working extremely hard are not able to find the time or the energy or whatever it takes to change their life habits. And I hope that we are sympathetic to them. Yes. And, you know, and also it's, you know, some people have, you know, easier opportunities in, you know, setting up a whole home gym, right? Uh, you Absolutely. know, and, and and being able to do that or, you know, have memberships in like great gyms that are right across the street from where they work and they can just go there during the lunch hour and other people don't have that. So again, to kind of say, oh, just do more exercise again is a bit... You know, I think there are good ways, you know, that you can improve physical activity and exercise. But again, you should be empathetic that different people have different struggles and different challenges in their life, maybe at this point in a given situation. Um, so that should be always be kept in mind when, when advising people on, on, on these kind of behavioral modifications. Okay, so that said, what recommendations do you have for our listeners about exercise? What kind yes. and how much? Yeah. So I'll just kind of um, give out the official recommendations from the CDC and the American College for Sports Medicine. So to kind of get the science data out there. So the minimum is 150 minutes in a week of moderate intensity physical activity. So moderate intensity is um, um, they kind of say, like, you know, if you're getting out of breath that you can't sing, but you can still talk, that's kind of moderate intensity. <laughs> if you um, want to have substantial health benefits, you would need uh, more than 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity a week. And if you switch to high, you know, high intensity, you can do fewer, fewer, fewer minutes. Mm-hmm. Another important part is muscle strengthening activities, especially when people get older. Mm-hmm. It is important to also pay attention to that because, you know, preventing a fall is very important. You know, that's mm-hmm. one of the main reasons age people end up in the hospital is a fall, which is a lot of times caused by frailty, you know, lack of balance, lack of muscle strength. So um, you should do these kind of exercises twice a week. And kind of like my personal take home message on exercise to boil it down is more is better, but every step counts mm-hmm. and stick to what you can stick with. Balance is something that I don't understand. It seems to have something to do with the ears. So tell us about balance. <laughs> so, so, so two things. So they're like the kind of, um, how do you say the like balance and coordination has kind of like two components. The one is the CNS component, as you talked about, like the inner ear and, um, you know, the cerebellum, the, um, that is helping you to coordinate your movement. So this is basically the sensing and telling your muscles what you have to do that you don't fall or that you execute a task 
properly. And the other side of that coin is basically having the muscle strength to do that. So if you're frail, kind of in the sense, like, for example, your quadriceps muscles are not that good anymore, you know, you walk, you kind of, you know, maybe you get trapped by the edge of your carpet. So your brain is telling you, oh, my God, you're falling, you you know, you do something about it. But if you don't have the muscle strength, then to basically, you know, um, contract the muscles you need to contract to keep yourself upright, you will still fall. Ah. So that's why... You know, these are the two components. And again, different exercise. For example, yoga is great for that, right? You know, mm-hmm. to incre- improve like flexibility, balance, and also muscle strength okay. to do that. Um, so that's something that also, you know, sorry, I don't want to say like people have to do all of these things. It's never enough, but <laughs> I think it's something, something to keep, to keep in mind because, you know, and again, if you think about, you know, um, people and, you know, aging, you know, if you want to stay independently living in your home, mm-hmm. keeping up muscle strength is important because, you know, you want to be able to you know get your groceries in you know do the cooking and the laundry and all of it all of that needs needs muscle strength right that you yeah. can keep taking care of yourself and that you're not at the risk for fall and um, maybe another thing before you start exercising you know depending on how fit you are if you have underlying conditions or you haven't exercised in a long time you know maybe you should speak to your you know health care provider what kind of exercise is good for you? What is safe? What are good ways to get started? Well, it's really, it's really all uh, so positive. It just feels like it's a happy circle of reinforcement. All these things working together to, uh, yeah, make us feel better, uh, be healthier, and live longer. Uh, so, thank you so much for taking the time to talk us through this. And before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience? Anything that you have? Uh, that you would like to refer them to? So I think, you know, uh, we, as a lot of them are on Twitter. So a lot of our, you know, new work can be found there or exciting events that we are participating in. So it's um, uh, at RANLAB. Follow us on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. It was such a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. All right. It was a great pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.